Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Dr. Santos here, your pediatric infectious disease doctor and researcher. And, you know, Santos, I was thinking we have not done any traveling in a while, or at least any plagues. We have been very lax in, you know, kind of moving our around the world in 80 plague series forward. And if I'm going to be perfectly honest, I kind of stopped counting, so I really don't know how many plagues deep we are. I know we're not at 80. I know we're more than two. But somewhere after There's... that, I kind of lost track. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, we, we might change the name of the series at t- some point to, like, around the world in as many plagues as we want to. But it's not as And we promise that eventually, in some form... Right, right. (laughs) Mexico will cover the rest of the plagues. Right, and, you know, if you read the original Jules Verne around the world in 80 (laughs) days, I mean, the guy even screws up, you know, how many days he's traveling in because he forgets about time zones and, (laughs) you know, the prime meridian and, you know, the different days on the eastern hemisphere and western hemisphere. So uh, we're going to stick with the catchy title, and if we're short of 80, or if we hit 80, or we go over 80, I'm going to let this stop bothering me, like keeping me up at night, um, because I'm going to rise above this. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's just something that we can never forget, which brings us to the difficult topic of today's plague. I feel like we can't avoid it anymore. Sure. You know what I mean, Santosh. We, yeah. we we can't avoid talking about <laughs> the, the elephantiasis <laughs> in the room. 
<laughs> I thought I thought you wanted me to do the pun off the an elephant never forgets. Um, which, by the way, guys, we're about to describe just a horrific, disfiguring disease. But in true travel medicine podcast fashion, we're not going to stop making horrible puns about it. Let us get started, going back deep into history. Yes, to find start out with history, Doctor Josh. Well, there is. This is a disease that has been around for a long, long time. In fact, it's thought to have affected humans since about 4,000 years ago because it's mentioned in one of my favorite ancient scrolls, the Ebers Papyrus from ancient Egypt, that described people with severely swollen limbs. Now, that's, that is a vague reference to the, to the disease. Then along come the ancient Greeks where they noted it in the areas of India and East Asia, only they described it as a mythological creature, the Skiapodes. And yeah, no, when they... They actually thought, you know, it was... The, the people with these limbs looked so different from human beings in terms of their arms and legs that they thought this was a different species of upright walking mammal. They were called Skiapodes, shadow-footed, because they were described as having a tribe of men in India who move in jumps with surprising speed and have only one leg, but in the hottest weather, they lie on their backs on the ground and protect themselves with the shadow of their feet. And of course, in elephantiasis, limbs get severely swollen and enlarged. So it's not difficult to imagine that an ancient Greek might have seen this and when trying to represent it, only been able to describe somebody who had a one leg that was the size of two or three. Don't worry, guys. We are going to cover all the like symptomatology and stuff in just a little bit. So hang in there. We got a little more history to go. What do you mean? We hang in there. <laughs> this is exciting stuff. It's amazing. I actually, I personally love it. And I got to tell you, every time we go back to ancient Egypt. You know, these were people who described things like tuberculosis before we knew what it was. We have hieroglyphs of people with a lame leg that obviously describes poliomyelitis. So they had a really sophisticated understanding of the description of disease and could kind of codify it for us in such a way that we could really understand how far back this particular plague was affecting our human race. Well, I will tell you a brief travel story because the Skiapode makes me think of another instance that we had when I was traveling with my family in Greece. Okay. Uh, which is, of course, where some of our heritage is. Right. And we were going to a certain coffee shop every morning to enjoy a delicious... Uh, Greek breakfast with some coffee and cheese and fruit. And I wanted to show off my knowledge of my heritage and practice my Greek. So I decided I was going to order my entire meal in flawless Greek. Just blow people away. Okay. All right. The, and guys, for those of you who don't know, as much as Dr. Josh is a lover of history and culture... He is also a polyglot. He loves learning languages, and he's very good at it. You know, we'll we'll do it sometime and just run through 
the number of languages this man has, but very proud, and for good reason. Well, before you sing my praises too much... here we go, here we go. I attempted to start off my order, and I made it through the feta and the lamb very easily, and then I got to ordering my coffee, and I asked for a nice big cup of skata, uh, which, if to any of our Greek listeners, they're already laughing, and here's why. Because the word for coffee is not skata, it is skatos. And you may think to yourself that this mere syllable could not possibly make that much of a difference. Sure, yeah, yeah, just a little bit of, you know, maybe you got, like, the plural rather than singular. Right. Well, almost. Well, not at all. (laughs) 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 Not not even kind of. Sure, okay. What happened? What happened? (laughs) Skato means coffee. Skata means, uh, to put politely, fecal matter. Oh! Oh, you ordered a cup of shit. Oh, my God. I ordered a steaming cup of shit, and the first waiter could only laugh at me ceaselessly. And, and, no, but this is this is a uh, a language root. This is the this is the Grecian root of the word scatological, meaning shit humor. And you would think with Latin, I would have remembered that, but you would be wrong. So <laughs> there is your language lesson for the day, folks. Uh, now, Greek coffee is, in fact, wonderful. Please do not confuse the similarity of the two words for a conflation of the tastes. <laughs> but we got sidetracked. Yeah. So the disease that we're going to be talking about, elephantiasis, was really first documented in the modern world in in and around the 16th century when Dutch explorer Jan Huygen van Linschoten... Really? That's awesome. <laughs> That's fantastic. Freund Leven, uh, during... The exploration of Goa, he noted that the descendants of those who had killed St. Thomas were all born with a lower limb, swollen from the knee down, similar to the leg of an elephant. And therefore, the first name for this disease that we really have is the curse of St. Thomas. Now, St. Thomas, of course, for those of you who do not follow saints and legends, (laughs) I don't know. How do you describe The few of you out there. Right, the few. (laughs) Yeah, this this was the same. So uh, this was the guy who went out east to kind of proselytize uh, in yeah. India, in India specifically, and he went there to preach the gospel and was oh. murdered. I'm sorry, <laughs> martyred. But murdered, martyred. Yeah. That's murdered with style. It's murdered with style sure, sure. for God. In the areas that he was known to be proselytizing or evangelizing, they named this disease the Curse of Saint Thomas. Uh, he did not cause it. It was simply endemic right. to the area. And with without burying the lead, Santosh, why don't you tell us a little bit about the epidemiology of elephantiasis? What is the true right. disease? Because we are dancing around with the, the fancy, flashy sure, name. Sure. So uh, we're going to start with the actual agent that causes the disease. And this is a little worm. It's a little roundworm, a nematode. And these are all in a group or a class called Filaria. And all of these worms have one thing in common. They like to inhabit our lymphatics, which are the vessels aside from arteries and veins. These are the things that drain the lymph or the byproducts of 
the destruction from white blood cells. So the white blood cells chew up and eat something like dead cells or bacteria, and then they're carried to our lymph nodes, which we know well. You know, you can feel them around your neck when they're swollen and you're sick. And these lymphatics are where the roundworms, once they burrow in, this is where they like to live. So we've got three main species of roundworm. We've got Boucheria bancrofti, or I should say Boucheraria bancrofti. That sounds like it belongs in, you know, an H.P. Yeah. Lovecraft story. Nyarlotep, <laughs> Boucheria. Yeah, something out of, like, biblical, and then Asmodeus, and Boucheraria arose from the briny deep. <laughs> All bancrofti. Yeah, book of Revelations type of thing. Brugia Malay and Brugia Timori. So... These guys are transmitted by mosquitoes. Um, we're definitive hosts, meaning that once these little worms, and they start out as baby worms that we can barely see, that live in the mouth parts of mosquitoes, they're injected into our bloodstream, they find their way into our lymphatics, and essentially what they do is they swim around, they, they take root and hold in our lymphatics where they can thrive and reproduce. But the horrible side effect of this is that we have inflammation in those lymphatic vessels and tissues. Those vessels become kind of sealed off because of the inflammation and the worm burden that's in there. And this drainage of lymph from our limbs back into the center of our body so that it can be recycled stops. So all that fluid just sort of gets backed up because there are no alternate vessels to drain it out. So we've got Wuchereria bancrofti. This guy is in sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, and India, and the Pacific Islands. And it is also found in the New World, or the Western Hemisphere, Latin America, and the Caribbean, including Haiti. We've got Brugia malayi, which it has the word Malay in it, so you think of Malaysia, but also in the South China Sea, so China, India, the Philippines, Indonesia and Brugia Timori, which are a little more specific to the Timor island of Indonesia. So you find a lot of this in Asia. You find a little bit of lymphatic chloriasis in Africa, and then the rest of it is in uh, the Caribbean, Costa Rica. It's everywhere in the tropical world. It's everywhere. It's in my raccoon wounds. <laughs> That's yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. You know, you, you find the horrible goddamn mosquitoes, and I, I hope they all die. I swear to God. But you know, anywhere where you can find mosquitoes in you know that tropical belt between uh, the tropics of Cancer and Capricorn, you're going to find. Um, these uh, filaria, along with a bunch of our other plates that we'll cover in the future episodes. So now I will I will point out before everybody starts getting too terribly panicked because as you may have heard, it's dispersed over a fairly wide area. And you know, to to even more briefly sum up, you've got about 1.4 billion people at risk of the disease in an area covering 73 countries. Yeah. So it's it is. Fairly yeah. prevalent. And that those statistics come right off the CDC. Uh, again, there are more than 120 million people worldwide infected with lymphatic filariasis, and we don't really have 
a cure, as Santosh mentioned. But as common as it remains, it is not easy to contract or to get, and it's not really a threat to the casual tourists. You know, unlike malaria, which can be transmitted by only a single bite, you usually have to be bitten by mosquitoes carrying male and female worms who aren't traveling together. So it requires multiple, multiple bites over a longer period of time because you have to have the mosquito carrying the, each gender of worm. Those worms have to crawl into punctures in the skin. Then they have to find each other within your body. Then they have to mate. So it's a pretty long involved process, which is not going to happen from a single mosquito bite. So while this is something that you should be aware of, it's not something that is posing quite the same you know, level of threat as Zika or chikungunya or yeah, dengue. And the evidence of that is really in the numbers of people who travel to these endemic areas and who come back without any signs or symptoms, lymphatic filariasis. So you do need to be exposed to the worms the first time in order to have that immune response, that inflammatory response, which can hurt your lymphatic vessels. It's not just the worm burden. You actually have to have inflammation in those vessels so they kind of fibrose and seal shut. So you've got to, your body has to see them or experience them multiple times. And then just like Josh said, in order for them to proliferate and stick around, they do have to meet up boys and girls and uh, make sweet, sweet love in your body. <laughs> Which, uh, that sounds Lovecraft. The worms bred within my blood, <laughs> heeding the dark yeah, I, this I mean, it's so gross and disgusting that a lot of our greatest sci-fi and fantasy writers couldn't come up with stuff like this. I mean, earwigs be damned, right? Like a single guy just going in the well, you... But a worm living in your body for five years and just boning... Well, there's no bones, but you know. Worming? Worming? <laughs> that's, is that worse? It that sounds, sounds worse. So the, <laughs> the issue here is not really like malaria where this is going to kill you. But the issue here is it's going to disfigure, it's going to cause disability, and it's going to cause predisposition other infections. For instance, if you have stasis of lymph in your limbs, then you can get stasis ulcers and, you know, loss of feeling so you can get a puncture wound. So you can get just disability upon disability. And these worms being endemic to certain parts of Africa, Asia, the Caribbean, you can have whole populations of people who are not able to advance in terms of things like lifespan and even maybe like technology because they're constantly being hindered by infection. When we say disfiguring and disability, you know, you can certainly go to Google Image and you are going to see something that, well, frankly, you don't see every day. And but please, here's... please be aware, it's they're not pleasant. So before you type elephantiasis in there, make sure that you're prepared, that you feel safe, you're not set off by, you know, disfigurement of limbs because it's not at all good to look at. Right, and the idea is that you have legs which are so swollen that they begin to resemble an elephant's. They do crust over and get these venous stasis ulcers, and that is terrible and awful and disfiguring, but ten times as common 
as swelling of the legs is a symptom that is almost never spoken of. Hydrocele, which is right. I wanted to. I wanted to easy no, and gently. That's okay, but sometimes so, you just gotta, you know, grab them by the. Oh, you tell them the engorged scrotums. Yeah, so we have lymphatics draining every extremity in our body, and gentlemen out there, the scrotum is an extremity. It'll look pretty extreme because scrotums can swell from the size of a softball or even a basketball in severe cases. And while we certainly use the the expression big balls to mean somebody who's very aggressive or macho or just confident, whatever you decide to ascribe to it, the literal experience of having testicles the size of a basketball makes life incredibly difficult. Yeah, yeah. just moving around. And part of the reason this happens, and it's not reversible, even if the worms are killed, is that First, most of these limbs or bulges can't be surgically drained because lymph fluid, which we'll talk about in a little bit, swells all the, the tissue. It's constantly flowing. It doesn't fill a single pouch. The damage is permanent because when lymph nodes get overstretched, they don't shrink again. The worms eventually just die inside them. It's like, you know, having that elastic waistband of a pair of pants. When it gives out, there's no coming back. Right. One thing that we don't always think about, but I certainly do from the standpoint of infection, is the material that is being accumulated called Kyle. <laughs> Kyle! Damn it, Kyle! No, it's a C-H-Y-L-E, Kyle, this milky white substance. It's not just filled with the debris of dead cells and everything else, but these are your white cells. These are very important immune cells and they're trying to travel and circulate back through so they can get back to the veins and the arteries and patrol the body and look for infection. If you drain a lot of chyle out of the body, especially very quickly, you will effectively lower your body's white blood cell count and make yourself immunodeficient. Before we go into any more symptoms, I do want to talk about very briefly diagnosis of this because this is one of those really truth is stranger than fiction type moments and we are going to have to get into a little bit of etymology as well so you know i'm I'm getting to hit all my high points santos this might be one of the most fun episodes i've had researching i mean we've got to talk about where does rugia come from rusheraria well you know yeah hit us first we can talk about its discovery all the way back to victorian times 1800s 1850 William Prout was the very first to discover this chyluria that uh, Dr. Santosh was talking about earlier. Then, 1863, French surgeon Jean-Nicolas de Marquet became the very first to record the observation of these parasites, these worms, in fluid from a hydrocele, one of these enlarged scrotums. He named it filaria because in Latin that means thread, and that's what these worms looked like, were threads. Yeah, when you take out the adult worms... Uh, and examine them, not even under a microscope, but, uh, you know, he handled them probably with his bare hands. But, yeah, they, uh, <laughs> as if you were to pluck a thread from your shirt or something. In 1877, Patrick Manson, a Scottish parasitologist who worked in Taiwan, <laughs> I can only imagine nobody would have oh, understood each other. <laughs> trying to speak in either a Scottish... <laughs> vernacular or an accent in 
Taiwanese are already struggling with that. He discovered that the lymphedema of elephantiasis, meaning the swelling of the lymph, the lymphatic vessels that actually contributes to the deformity, is caused by embryos of a parasite and transmitted by a mosquito. He was the first to point it out the, that the mosquito Culex fatigans, which sounds like a really fancy watch, <laughs> you know, what is that? What kind of mosquito is it? Oh, it's a Culex. <laughs> Can you imagine, like, Tom Brady or Eli Manning, you know, in one of those commercials? <laughs> That's a fancy <laughs> infestation you have. Ah, oh, thank you. It's a Culex. <laughs> it's a Culex. When you want only the most exclusive diseases, go with Culex. Although, yeah, it's not all that exclusive. Those bastards are everywhere. Well, the reason... The reason this was such an important discovery and worth mentioning is this was the very first time that mosquitoes were found to transmit disease. So before we knew about malaria, before we knew about dengue, chikungunya, every single mosquito vector or arthropod as a vector, this was the very first one discovered, the one behind elephantiasis. Right, and you can imagine why uh, it's just that these guys are easy to see. So malaria is a one-celled parasite. Um, we've not yet entered the age of viruses yet, where you could conceive or, or think about things so small that you know even a microscope sort of couldn't see it. So the types of wee beasties, as Lee Woodhook would say, that you were able to see with a standard microscope were about the size of the microfilarial or baby worm. Now, the baby worms or the baby form of the worms were discovered by two people in the 1860s and 70s. The first was Otto Wucheria, who described the baby form of the worm, and he he noted it just in a lab, but Joseph Bancroft mentioned it in his journals, noting in a specific case of a diseased patient. And for the two, they named it Otto Wuchereria Joseph Bancroft, Wucheria Bancrofti. <laughs> Such a wonderful thing. And now, now they live on in infamy as a worm. <laughs> Nobody likes me. Everybody <laughs> hates me. Guess I've got Guess, some worms. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So... The question is, of course, how do we diagnose it today? Because we can see the after effects, but if you can catch the worms before they start having their love in, you may be able to prevent this, perhaps. So how do you diagnose it at all? It's one of the most insane methods. You have to... Okay, Santosh, I'm going to get too excited. Let's let's keep it grounded. You, Why don't you tell sure. us about night yeah. bleeding? So, we all have our circadian rhythms, right? We, we have our rhythms when, this is when we like to wake up. This is when we like to go to sleep. And by and large, human beings are not nocturnal. We are daytime types of creatures. But the lymphatic filaria, and by the way, there are other little worms that can cause elephantiasis. We'll get to that in a little bit. But the... The Wuxeria uh, bancrofti and the Brugia species both like to kind of cut at night. <laughs> so the, the adult worms will, if, if you have them, 
will be staying in the subcutaneous or under the skin tissues. You won't be able to see them in the blood. But the microfilariae, which will kind of come out of the adult worms and will swim around in the blood, or will be deposited in your blood by mosquitoes, will come out anywhere between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. <laughs> so what you have to do if you find your patient who has hopefully the early stages of disease is you want to draw their blood <laughs> right at around 11 p.m. midnight. <laughs> so as a physician... You know, right before the worms head down to the fridge for a midnight <laughs> snack and quickie. <laughs> Exactly. So if you're a good physician, you got to wake up, rub the sleep out of your eyes, and go wake up your patient and bleed them, uh, and, and immediately take it to the microscope to see if you see any baby worms. And they're quite easily identifiable by a skilled technician, and then you say, hey, you have filariasis, and you begin thinking. <laughs> now, we're using filariasis as shorthand, but I believe, Santosh, the full name is is it lower filariasis? Uh, well, no. So, uh, filariasis will describe Boucheria brancrofti and the two Brugia. But if uh, if you're talking about elephantiasis or lymphedema in general and the worms that cause it, we also include Oncocerca volvulus, which is a disease that can also cause eye problems like liver blindness. And you have another little worm called Loa Loa. And yes, that is the Latin taxonomic term, L-O-A space, uh, space L-O-A. These little <laughs> worms can also cause uh, elephantiasis, although where these worms live are slightly different but overlapping with our other worms that we just talked about that cause filariasis. Uh, the reason I mention is because, you know, you mentioned Loa, and that reminded me, of course, of the the voodoo spirits. And I wondered if they had a connection between the two. And it did take some time to hunt anything down, but thanks to Microbe World and many hours of tedious web searching, we learned that Loa, which also, you know, refers to the actual eye worm seen in that onchocercosis, the, the river blindness, may be derived from the Yoruba word lawo, which means mystery, but to those who follow voodoo, the noon and midnight hours when the sun casts no shadow and the day changes over is a perilous time when people are vulnerable to possession by spirits such as Loa. Now, interestingly, since both adults and babies of the microfilaria are diurnal they have maximum activity occurring at noon and midnight when the west african practitioners of voodoo would be most susceptible to spirit possession is also the time when these worms would be most likely to be swarming and detectable that is so cool who knows how much of voodoo also may have been mixed in with common medical knowledge of the era absolutely yeah that's fantastic you said that early symptoms can include an adorable rash. <laughs> I said an acute rash. <laughs> and uh, Well, that's just semantics. What makes it so cute? <laughs> it's not very cute at all. It's uh, itchy and it's, <laughs> it's absolutely horrible. So 
There, there are early manifestations. So you can have adenolymphangitis fever, and we always think of the ones that are along the neck, but there are lymph nodes you can feel in the back of your knee and under your armpit. So those can get swollen and extremely painful. You know, through the skin, you see red streaks going down your arms from the point of uh, the lymph node, which gets swollen. The, the mosquitoes like to bite, you know, the, the extremities. So you can see the lymph node swollen in the groin, under your armpit, because, you know, that's where the worms have gotten to. What we call inflammatory plaques, lesions on the skin. And then you also get fever, chills, and headaches. These can be mixed up with a lot of different tropical diseases. You can actually be at a bit of a loss in this acute phase of what you actually have. Later on, as the worms kind of live and they divide and they mate, they're more microfilaria. And we're talking about, you know, over the course of five years, 10 years, 15 years, you'll start to get lymphedema where the lymphatic vessels, as I stated before, no longer recirculate the lymph back to the center of your body, um, where it gets dropped off, you know, in your chest. But the, that lymph sequesters in your arms or your legs or wherever uh, the lymphatic vessels have been obliterated. And so you get swelling of a lymph. And uh, it can be, you know, very typically in the lower limbs in your legs. But it can also happen in the arm, um, and if that and, and the scrotum get obliterated, <laughs> if the lymphatic vessels around your groin and the ones which drain your scrotum, then of course you can get edema in the scrotum. Um, eventually, you can get obliteration of lymphatic circulation in the intest around the intestinal tract, and you can actually get the lymph getting dumped into your kidneys and you'll pee out the chyle. And so you'll have chyleurea, which will look like a milky uh, white, you know, it'll, it'll almost look like ejaculate when you pee, um, but you won't be ejaculating. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of the, the progression up till the point where the lymphatic vessels get so obliterated that you no longer have any circulation at all and the lymph just builds up, builds up in an arm or in a leg, and you get that big, bloated extremity with the elephant skin kind of sagging over it, where it is called as elephantiasis. Essentially, this is the progression of the disease. We've talked a little bit about the severe difficulty it can cause for people. You know, imagine, again, if your feet are so thick that you are not strong enough to even lift your legs, you become effectively homebound. You can't walk to and from the market, and this has nothing to do with any kind of weakness. You are simply not strong enough to move your own limbs. Or with your scrotum or extra skin of your feet dragging along the ground, you are subject to frequent cuts, bruises, and multiple reinfections, meaning you're always at a kind of a chronic level of illness as well. So you can imagine if this happens, you know, if if you get an outbreak of disease, um, because every time a mosquito will feed, it'll pick up microfilariae from a victim as well as depositing it. So you have enough people concentrating in one area who are just chronically infected, 
and the mosquitoes feed and they just spread this and spread this, you can have an entire village or sometimes even an entire society just um, stuck in a cycle of infection. So let's talk about how we actually treat that infection. Hopefully people won't take this the wrong way, but the first medicine used is effectively the same one we give to dogs, HeartGuard. And it's a good one. It works beautifully. But of course, HeartGuard is a trade name. And as I've learned from my days of being Dr. J Apocalypse Vet, which mad respect to veterinarians because my my friends and family often assume that having gone to people medical school, I am just knowledgeable about any and all medicine. Especially veterinarians that handle so-called exotic animals, which in the United States is anything other than a dog or a cat, you have to be conversant and flexible in your own brain with so many different types of physiologies and different normals, right? Like for us, Josh, you know, 38.5 is a fever. I mean, whoever it is, the human is a human is a human. But, you know, a heart rate for a horse is different from a heart rate for your, you know, your school pet gerbil. And Right, and it's not like you can get a reliable history because a horse is a horse, of course, of course. And no one can talk to a horse, of course. Uh, well, I mean, that is, of course, unless the horse is the famous Mr. Ed. Go right to the source and ask the horse. He'll give you an answer that you'll endorse. You know, I, I thought for a second that we were going to go way over time because you felt compelled to just finish the entire jingle. And then, of course, of course, we would have to, I mean, we would be obligated because no one has seen that show in a billion years to actually... You shut your mouth. There are people out there listening right now who know what I'm talking about, and I will hear nothing to the contrary. I, I would love for our listeners, if you could please jump on Facebook or Twitter, and, you know, just to help our other listeners out, just to tweet, what, what is the Mr. Ed show? <laughs> And what the hell was Dr. Josh just rambling on about <laughs> with a <laughs> This better not be another one of those roll-up window moments. <laughs> another one of these where Josh was like, listen guys, do you guys remember Nick at Night? It was Nick at Night. <laughs> People scratching their heads going, what the hell is he talking about? <laughs> If you weren't alive in the 1950s to see it the first time around, it was on Nick at Night. We're going to get around rediscussing giardiasis again, and you're going to mention Leave it to Beaver. Who's <laughs> 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 he talking about the beam? What is the beam? Who's the beam? If you think, you no, are, if no, you think you're I, okay I now. Catch my breath. Listeners, please, uh, Google uh, Mr. Ed. And uh, we'll wait for you. <laughs> you can pause the show. <laughs> I'll be here giggling. <laughs> Several drugs, all initially developed for deworming cattle and pets, will kill the worms. And they include Glaxo's albendazole and Merck's mectazan, which that's basically what HeartGuard is. It's the antibiotic or actually the antiparasitic albendazole. Which, Santosh, how does that work? It's a neurotoxin for the worm. And we do have to watch out for dosage because it can be neurotoxic to us as well. But essentially, 
it just paralyzes the macro filaria or the adults so they can't move and they can either be attacked by our white blood cells um, or they just get stuck to the point where the movement of lymph and blood just kind of circulates them uh, to a place in our system like our spleen where they can be destroyed and ripped apart. It's a drug that acts as a stun gun for the worms in your blood. Yeah, yeah, it's a neurotoxin for worms. Now, another drug that is commonly used and actually preferred in the third world in some cases is the drug diethylcarbamazine, uh, carb- carbamazine, which can which can be added to household salt and made incredibly cheaply by several yeah, companies. Is- right now, they're really not widely available. You know, only a, maybe a quarter of the villages in the world where they're actually needed. And this is really important because these worms, when they when they start having a, some afternoon delight, they can breed for about six years before they die. So when you start treating an infected person, they have to be dewormed annually for six years before you can be completely sure yeah, that the infection so has we cleared. We follow our patients not only clinically, but you repeat blood smears and you you make sure that they're not progressing and you kind of dose them again and again and again. So... It's a, it's a long process to eradicate this, especially from a endemic population. Now, one of the convenient side effects of this, of course, is that because these drugs such as albendazole and diethylcarbamazine all will, well, they're anti-worm drugs, they kill other worms. So when people do start getting dewormed for things like this, Within days, mothers will also see their kids pass hookworms. Uh, people with schistosomiasis will stop urinating blood. Some adults see their lice and scabies fall off. And because of this, I found out that mectizan is sometimes known as the poor man's Viagra. People stop itching, they feel great, and everything's working again. I think a way of saying we have been co-evolving with these parasites for as long as humanity has been around. So these worms are exclusive to human beings, but there are other worms which are exclusive to other animals in the wild, and they co-evolve, they come up together, and it's actually kind of a weird and strange thing that we grow up without them, to the point where we have this subset of white cells and antibodies in our system mast cells, eosinophils, immunoglobulin E, or IgE, which is a subset of antibodies, which have been specifically evolved to destroy helminths, or worms. And when they have nothing to do, we get allergies. (laughs) These guys attack antigens (laughs) in our everyday environment, like pollen and dust mites, and we get allergic. This is a outbranching of the hygiene hypothesis that's being explored right now that human beings have lived with worms for so long and we've gotten used to living with them in our skin, under our skin, in our gut, and just in this little inflammatory balance with our IgE and our mast cells and our eosinophils always having this job to do to keep the worm burden down so we can make it to adulthood and ourselves propagate. 
and in case you didn't know how long this has been around, I mean, even oh, yeah. Frank Sinatra sang about it, uh, I believe, right? Because he said he had a whole song all about worms. It was, um, under I've skin. got you <laughs> under my skin. <laughs> I've got you, you deep go. in and the heart of me. that was a love song, and it's way not you guys. Right? Everyone's always on Johnny Cash Ring of Fire for being about a disease. But really, yeah. it's uh, old Blue Eyes he was. He who was knew what was. I'm co-opting <laughs> uh, Frank Sinatra's I've Got You Under My Skin to talk about parasites from now until the end of time. But, uh, yeah, it's it's absolutely true. <laughs> it. It is disabling, and it stops, uh, especially people who have to live with mosquitoes all the time and all the diseases that they carry, it stops them sometimes from either advancing as a culture, but at the same time, they're kind of in this state of equilibrium with the parasites that live in them and among them. So this is something to think about in terms of ecology, but in terms of disease, we definitely just want to wipe this crap out because it's horrible. While it is not a disease that can be cured, once the damage is done, we've said the damage is done. When your lymph nodes get stretched out, there is no snapping that elastic back into place. And whatever disfigurement has already been caused is sadly there to stay. But this disease can be prevented or if caught early enough, eradicated. Now, this is what happened in China, which eliminated disease completely. Imagine, imagine a landmass, a country the size of China, completely eliminating this disease by ordering villagers to use a specific drug, this diethylcarbamazine that can be sprayed onto salt. Now, we do have to be a little bit careful with it. Um, In the case of Oncocerca, diethylcarbamazine can cause a very acute, oh, there we go again, (laughs) a very acute reaction to the microfilaria or the baby worm suddenly dying. You can get an eruption, a horrible rash and fever and itching, and it can actually be such a horrible counter-reaction that it can put your patient in danger. So where you have regions... Uh, that co-infection is common, we actually can't just give DEC or diethylcarbamazine freely. We have to make sure that Oncocerca is under control before doing anything else. But albendazole to kill the, the adult worms, the big guys, is pretty much always a safe bet. It is, however, slightly more expensive than DEC, although thanks to companies like Glaxo and Merck donating a large proportion to the third world, it is very affordable and has kept these diseases or this particular disease on the, you know, getting closer to the endangered diseases species list. One of the countries that is working on this currently is Haiti, which again, falls into that same region in the Caribbean, Africa, Indonesia that is heavily affected by this condition. And Haiti has a salt program that employs people to help make this preventative salt. But for a poor country, it ends up being relatively expensive. The program employs about 50 people who just walk up and down the beach and they get sea salt from beach pits they pull out rocks and twigs they wash the salt then they spray it with iodine and dec and rebag it okay. it costs wait for it 26 cents 
to make each Which bag of like salt. To us, but for a poor country like Haiti, that's quite a bit of money. Well, even if you, you know, say 26 cents doesn't sound like a lot to make. And if you say 26 cents doesn't sound like a low amount for walking up and down the beach picking salt out of the ground, you you get out of <laughs> yeah, You go stand seriously. in the corner and think about what you Heartless. just said. But if that was not bad enough, and this is from the manager of the plant in Port-au-Prince, which is one of the major cities in Haiti, but they have to sell this, you know, treated salt that will prevent the worms, has to be sold at a loss. It can't be sold for more than 10 cents because otherwise local salt that is untreated and just gathered in, I don't know, handfuls out of garbage fires, presumably, uh, but... If it's not sold at 10 cents, which is a 16 cent loss on what it takes to make, no one will buy it. So they need people to tre- to accept treated salt. And remember, you have to be treated for six years continuously right. to and definitively honestly, clear the worm. You need to take a steady population. So within the radius of a particular mosquito population and human population, you have to treat everybody simultaneously and completely because otherwise... All that's going to happen is these mosquitoes are going to keep picking up microfilariae and transmitting them from person to person. So as soon as you, you know, wipe uh, one human being clean of disease, they're just going to get infected. And granted, the next time that they see the worm, they're more likely to kill the microfilariae on contact because they have immune memory. But sometimes... You know, your immune system is not as strong, and the worms take over faster than you can keep up because of burden, meaning the number of microfilaria that you get infected with. So, you know, you just get infected again, and you have to start the process all over. Now, we did leave off one treatment for these worms that is a little bit less common, but I think is delightful to talk about (laughs) and reminds me of a tiny little Terminator. And that is, you can also treat this... In the acute phase, yeah, with doxycycline. Doxycycline is an antibacterial, and we're talking about worms. Right, which, as we've already established, are two completely different things. Now, here's some of the drawbacks before I go into why it's used. This doesn't come up a lot because you have to be treated for four to six weeks, which is a lot longer than DEC or albendazole, at least in the short term. And you can't use it in young children, and you can't use it in pregnant women. So it's pretty limited in its use, because if you can't treat the kids and the ladies, they may end up passing it back to people who are taking the other methods. But the parasites responsible for causing elephantiasis, the Wucheria bancrofti, have a tiny little population of bacteria that live within them as symbiotes, known as Wolbachia. And that's why I think it sounds like the Terminator, Wolbibachia. We talked about Wolbachia before when we talked about mosquitoes. Um, it's going to freak you out, guys, because we've already talked about worms having sex inside of your body. But worms, just like human beings, have a primitive intestine. They have a gut. And just like us, their gut is populated with commensal bacteria. And their commensal bacteria is called Wolbachia. It's very important for them to be able to metabolize the nutrients that they're stealing from us. So if you wipe out their microbiome and their little worm intestines, they can't digest anything and they die. Yeah, so you kill the intestinal gut 
of the bacteria, and the worms just are permanently sterilized, even if they manage to live. And then, you know, when they can't have their love fests, they tend to die within one to two years instead of their normal 10 to 14 year lifespan. That's right, people are raising potentially teenage worms. They're like starving to death, even though they're trying to feed off of us, which is, in my opinion, a beautiful way to say As early as 2007, researchers at UIC Chicago had developed early types of vaccines to help, again, prevent lymphatic filariasis or elephantiasis. Because once you've seen the disfiguring disability, it cannot be cured. Those lymph vessels are fibrosed, they're destroyed. We don't really have any good surgical way to restore them. And if you don't have the vessels to recirculate the lymph back into the center of your body, close to your heart, then that lymph just pools. It stays in your system. And that pretty much, I think, wraps up everything I have to contribute on elephantiasis. Uh, Santos, do you have anything else you'd like to add, or <laughs> shall we pack all the well, rest of this junk in the trunk? Let me reiterate, just for our listeners who are freaking out right now because they love to travel, and they're like, I'm dying. I can feel the worms inside of me. We, we've got to let you know and reiterate that travelers and even to the point where if you're an expatriate, where if you're a kid who was born in this area and you got out of there, you probably very, very likely have insufficient exposure to the mosquitoes and the filaria to develop any chronic complications of infection. All right? So, if you get any hypersensitivity, if you have any edema, you should talk to your doctor. But genuinely, unless you've been living in one of these endemic areas for years and years and years... Or at least multiple months. You know, you're not going to pick this up from a week or two abroad. You need hundreds of bites. You're at risk because you'll probably encounter patients who have lymphedema or elephantiasis. <laughs> you know, St. Thomas's Curse, yam leg, sweet potato foot. These are all things yeah, that they people have been called. called. In fact, we are even trying to get rid of the term elephantiasis and talk about it as lymphatic filariasis or chronic lymphedema. So do not be worried. Hey guys, I want to cover one more entity, Dr. Josh, before we go out, and that is a non-infectious elephantiasis, believe it or not, called podoconiasis. Supercalifragilistic podoconiosis? Yeah, absolutely. We can call it supercalifragilistic podoconiosis. Uh, that took a lot of Even though the sound of it is something quite atrocious, if you say it loud enough, you'll always sound precocious. Dr. Josh has really been watching too many musicals lately. (laughs) Mary Poppins is a great one if you're going to indulge in musicals. It's one of my absolute favorites. Podoconiasis, getting back to the matter at hand, is non-infectious elephantiasis. And for people who live in endemic areas that are around volcanic ash and they walk barefoot and they're usually at elevation they can be at max like 1500 meters or so Um, the soil itself can actually irritate their skin and get under their skin 
and cause destruction of their lymphatic tissue just like the filaria can. And they can get an elephantiasis or a lymphedema which looks near identical to filarial elephantiasis. So you can see this in Uganda, Kenya, Rwanda, Burundi, and and non. But Uganda have to see it for yourself. Yeah, <laughs> non-endemic travelers. I should warn you guys: this is a real issue because you won't be in a place where the mosquitoes are around to actually get malaria in you. But if you walk around barefoot, you certainly can get lymphedema, and if you walk around long enough, you can get a chronic lymphedema due to, you know, just getting the soil under your skin and under your skin, and then you're going to need, like, chronic treatment for elephantiasis, because just like with the filaria, once the soil gets in and causes uh, irritation of the lymphatic vessels, and they get obliterated, there's no going back. So, um, those of you who do travel and you say, hey, I did get lymphedema and your doctor can't find any hint of filaria, either by a blood smear or by looking for antibody or anything else, um, this is another possibility. So non-infectious elephantiasis is also another one to look for. But guys, easy fix. Please don't walk around barefoot. <laughs> Right, so the next time you are hiking up to see the most gorgeous sunrise in Hawaii, tracking gorillas through the mist in Uganda, Mm -hmm. or sacrificing the local virgin to appease the all-powerful tiki god, please make sure to wear shoes, because you don't want to catch any kind of supercalifragilistic podoconiosis. Yeah, and there are other worms. There's all kinds of reasons to always have footwear on. And footwear that covers your whole foot, not just, you know, little gladiator sandals. I know you guys look awfully cute, but your feet will not look cute once uh, you have tons and tons of lymphedema or whatever horrible bacteria or virus or parasite you step on. So... You know, please wear your so sneakers or closed-toed sandals, folks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that brings us to the conclusion of this week's episode. So join us again next time. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact. 
you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.